And so, Father, we pray tonight as we learn of your ways, Lord, may they bring great encouragement, great comfort, a sense of direction, a a sense of hope in our lives for these days that we're living and the challenges that we may be facing, not just economically, but in many other areas in our lives. May our eyes be upon you, that you will meet every need in our life, our emotional needs our psychological needs, our spiritual needs, our relational needs, Father. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We're going to have you turn in your Bibles tonight to an Old Testament text. Uh, we're we're going to be in the book of 1 Kings, and beginning in chapter 17. I'm going to introduce you to a, a fun character. His name is Elijah. Many of you know about Elijah, and he's an amazing character. And, uh, yeah, he's all over the map, but you know we can all relate to him because the book of James says about Elijah that he was a person that was like us. He was a man of like passion. In other words, you could see his humanity. You could see the, the high points in his life. You can see the struggles in his life. You know, he just depicted who... He was as an individual. You know, I've actually been thinking about this message for about two months now, and so it's kind of been working in my heart. And God kind of challenged me a couple months ago, and I was looking at this passage. I want to pass that on to you. Many of us right now, we're living in a time of completely, it's a completely different economic time. How many recognize the price of oil has really dropped? Canadian dollars has dropped. Many people are unemployed now. We're actually in two-digit numbers now in the city of Red Deer. I was reading in the paper the other day, 10% of the people are unemployed. Uh, one of the congregants told me this morning there's been over 115,000 job losses in the province of Alberta alone. It's affecting every aspect. It doesn't just affect the oil industry. It affects every, all the other industries as well because they are driving our economy to some degree, right? And so we're all experiencing... You know, this word that the government doesn't even use is called recession, right? And I think we have to come to grips. We can't just pretend it's not happening. It is happening. And now I'm noticing that even people in our city are moving away because, you know, a lot of people came to Alberta looking for work, and now there's not as, work is not as accessible and available, and so they don't have family connections here. People are moving away. Last year, the city of Red Deer lost people. Our population dropped a little bit. Not a lot, but it did drop a little bit. And young families are moving back to where they originate from. And so we're seeing a change happening in our community. And I want to speak to this. And really the message I've entitled tonight is how to find, you know, provision in a time of famine. How many think that might be a good message to hear? How do we handle it when we're experiencing downturns in our personal lives? How do we handle the crisis? How do we handle it, especially when they're economic crisis? Because that seems to affect us in a very significant way. Now, in the Old Testament, when we read about famine, usually there's, I'm not saying always, but generally there's a correlation between what God's people were doing and how God was responding to them. Because you see, the nation of Israel was in a unique relationship with God. How many know that's true? There's no other nation on the earth today that had that kind of relationship with God. It's called a theocracy where God is in charge. They built a covenant relationship with God. God said to them, listen, all the other people are worshiping many gods. You're the only one that's worshiping me, Yahweh. And here's the deal. If you, if you will do what I tell you to do, I will take care of you. But if you rebel against me and begin to embrace, you know, the false religious structures and systems around you, I will turn my back on you and you will experience difficulty. And so I wanted to 
bring this out because Elijah bursts on the scene in chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to introduce him here. And this is what we read. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, I imagine most scholars didn't know that Tishbite was actually from a place called Tishi, you know, wherever, wherever that was. I'm sure it wasn't a big location. You know, it might be like from Penhold, you know. I don't know. I'm not picking on Penhold. But, you know, you know, because most of those, yeah, hey, come on, I'll pastor. Give us a break. No, but I, what I'm basically saying, it was a little town. And uh, most, of the, most of the places in Israel were small villages. We have to understand it was an agrarian society. He's not putting down the community. All right. And it says from Tishi, Tishbe in Gilead, and he said to Ahab, how many know who Ahab is? How many actually went to Sunday school? Who was Ahab? This is a test for all the Sunday school people. Who is Ahab married to? Jezebel is the right answer. And how many have ever heard her name before? Jezebel. Oh, man, Jezebel. She was the lady, right? And uh, she propagated a lot of evil in the land. And so, uh, and Ahab went right along with it. So we're not saying he's any better than she is. You know, these, the, actually, Ahab was a terrible king, wicked king, didn't follow God. So God sends Elijah to him, and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. How many think that's pretty powerful? Walk around and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm going to control the weather. Now, was that really what Elijah was actually saying? Or was actually Elijah God's spokesperson who was now bringing to the king's attention that they were in violation of the covenant and the agreement that they had made in this covenant, God was now going to enact you know, what would happen if you disobeyed the covenant. And I'm going to bring you all the way back to Moses and the words that Moses framed to the children of Israel as they were in covenant relationship with God. And in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 14, we read these words. But if you will not listen to me, now there was all these promises, if you'll listen to me, I will bless you. But then you get, if you don't listen to me, here's the negative side of the equation. He says, and you don't carry out all of my commands. And if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and, and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. Mm. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting disease, fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life, and you will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. How many go, that's not a nice picture? Nobody wants, how many wants this kind of thing happening to us? Nobody wants this. But God was basically saying, hey, you've come into an agreement. They all said, yeah, we agree with this covenant. We will follow you. We will obey you. Guess what? They didn't do that. And so this is now the stuff that God says is going to start happening to him. I will set my face against you. I don't know about you, but I want God for me. The Bible says if God be for you, who can be against you? But let me tell you something. You can have the whole world for you, and if you have God against you, you're in big-time trouble. Isn't that true? I'd rather be on the right side of God. It says, I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you. Wow, this is not a fun thing to do. You know, the people that can't stand you now are your bosses. Yuck, right? Then it says here, uh, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. In other words, fear and apprehension and anxieties and worries are going to overtake your life. And there's really nothing that should be bothering you, but you're just wound up on the inside, he said. You know, and it says, and after all of this, you will not listen to me. I will punish you for your sins seven times over. 
That's just a, you know, a, a wording device seven times. It's, you know, it's going to completely happen to you. God says, I'm going to really deal with you according to what you're doing. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. What, God, what is God really saying there? If the sky is iron and the ground is bronze, God is basically saying no rain. No rain. There's nothing coming out of the heavens. And how many know that when you really have a time of drought, the ground starts hardening big time. It dries right up. And so now you're not producing any things. Now, you know, young people today, if you say to them, you know, where do you get milk from? They know what they'll tell you? From the store. You know, where do you get, you know, bread from? From the store. But how many know there's actually goes beyond the store. The store is just, you know, a device to help us secure these things, but we actually get milk from a cow. We get bread from the grain that's growing in the fields. And so we, you know, there's a disconnect. We're not living in an agrarian society anymore. We're kind of disconnected. We think, you know, we'll always have these provisions. But the reality is, you know, if the crops aren't growing, if the cows aren't producing, if the chickens aren't hatching, we're going to have some problems. How many know that? Because, you know, you can buy all the electronic gadgets you want, but if you're not eating, guess what? Good luck. You know, you can't eat your cell phone. Or if you try, that's not going to have a lot of, you know, healthy ramifications in your body, right? We know that that's the reality. So it says here, uh, and, and the reason I bring this up is because basically what Elijah's doing, he's like a lawyer, like a, a prosecuting attorney. God's sending him in saying, hey, you guys violated the covenant. This is what I'm going to do. You guys aren't paying attention. So what is God trying to get these people to do? He's trying to get them to repent. He's trying to get them to change their mind. Isn't that true? And how many know that when God disciplines or when a parent disciplines correctly, that it's actually motivated out of love to actually help that individual stop doing behavior that's actually detrimental to themselves. And, you know, that behavior is not only detrimental to themselves, not only a negative thing, but it's also going to affect other people in a negative way. And so God is basically saying, you guys have turned your back on me, and so basically I'm turning my back on you, and I'm going to just let the ramifications of your sin kind of take over. So the interesting part is the nation of Israel, when they were in the promised land, it was unlike where they had come from. In the land of Egypt, and when you go to Egypt, what you're going to discover is this big river called the Nile. And the Nile has all these tributaries that actually move towards the Mediterranean, and it's called the Fertile Crescent. There's actually a lot of fertility there and a lot of growth because people do irrigation. So they were not dependent on the rains, okay? So the, so the people in Egypt, because they were not, you know, worshipers of one god, they actually worshiped many gods. And one of the gods they worshiped was actually the Nile River. And isn't it fascinating when God was dealing with the Israelites and trying to deliver them out of the bondage of Egypt, you know, he had these plagues. And one of the plagues was turning the Nile into blood so that it would not be life-producing. And that's why they were worshiping the river, because it was life-giving. And they saw that as an expression of life. And so now God brings them up to the promised land. But, you know, when you get to Israel, or, you know, where Israel today is, you have another river there called the Jordan River. But I'm going to tell you, the Jordan River is unlike the Nile River by a big deal. I mean, the Red Deer River is bigger than the Jordan River. Okay? So it's a little river, and it's fed by a mountain called Mount Hermon. But really, the crops and everything else in Israel is really determined by rain. And so these people were dependent upon God bringing rain upon the land. They were dependent on God. That's an important point. And I think that's something we keep forgetting, especially when we're in an affluent society, that we're really dependent on God. 
You know, we think we're dependent on our jobs, on our abilities, on our skills, but the reality is we're actually deeply dependent on God. And so when these people repented in the next chapter, chapter 18, and we know the story, I'll I'll remind you if you don't know it. Anyways, uh, Elijah finally, after three and a half years, he tells He goes and presents himself to King Ahab. He tells him to bring all these false prophets who are propagating this Baal worship structure. And he confronts them because you're going to love this. The the god Baal was actually the god of thunder, lightning, dew, and rain. So how many are beginning to see now that what was really happening here... I'm going to move through some of these verses now. And... This drought was not only a judgment on a nation that had turned to idolatry, but it was also a demonstration that even though Baal was considered the god of fertility and lord of the rain clouds, he was powerless to give rain. Basically, Elijah was saying, you guys are worshiping Baal, but he's not going to produce what you think. You're in trouble. You're not going to get rain. And that's to show you that Yahweh is God. So here at the end of three and a half years, they haven't had any rain And so he says to these Baal worshipers, he says, hey, you priests, you know, produce rain. And so they sacrifice to Baal and carry on and nothing happens. Of course, we know the story. Elijah is one guy. He sits there and he builds a little altar and he says, ah, put some water on it, you know. And, uh, you know, just over the sacrifice and calls out to God and lightning comes down. You know, you have fire, you know. And so all the people fall on their face and what do they scream out? Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God, right? Because they had halted, the Bible says, between Yahweh and Baal. They were trying to, you know, incorporate it all. And, you know, I think as Christians we do that. You know, we say, yeah, I'm really following Jesus, but I'm also following, you know, my source of provision, my job, my money. You know, we we have this kind of a very interesting tension. We want the things that this world has to offer, but we also want God. But God is very uh, jealous. He wants our absolute devotion He wants us completely. He's a lover, and he wants all of us. He doesn't want a piece of us. You know, he doesn't doesn't just want us to tack into him, and we just get something out of him. He wants everything. He wants us completely, and he he wants you to know that he's going to give himself completely to you. Very powerful. So tonight, what I'm going to try to do here is take a look at the story of Elijah and how God takes care of us in a time of difficulty and famine. Because how many know that because the nation had sinned, everybody was now suffering? And isn't it true when, you know, when we begin to suffer as a nation, how many know we're all affected by the recession? The good guys and the bad guys were all affected negatively, right? Isn't that true? But I want to show you tonight that if we're walking with God, that God will take care of us in the middle of our recession. That God will take care of us in the middle of our famine. God, God will do that, and I'm going to show you tonight how God is able to do that. So we can see it for ourselves, and we can stand on this and say, God, I know you're going to take care of me. You are my shepherd. I'm not going to have to want. And so we're going to discover here how God provides, and he's going to use some amazing means, and I'm going to look at two amazing means that God is going to use, uh, provide for us. And the first one is simply one that is what I call contrary to the nature of the provider. All right, let's pick up the story. Because God often um, will use others to help us in our time of need unbeknownst to to them. They don't even know they're they're actually God's provision for us. And in this case, God chose to use ravens to show us that God can even control the creation, right? So we pick up the verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook. I have, uh, 
I have, I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat. They had a little bit of a, you know, it wasn't just, you know, one piece of diet. I thought about this. You know, it wasn't just they were dragging in animal carcasses, but they were, you know, they were bringing in even bread, it says here, uh, in the evening, and he, and he drank from the brook. So we'll get back to those birds in a minute. But let me just go back to what God had spoken to these individuals. Notice what it says here. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. He had just spoken to Ahab. He said, this is what's going to happen. And then God says to him, leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine. Now, why would God have to tell Elijah to hide? Well, I think we need to know a little bit about what is about to transpire. Because of what Elijah said, Ahab now is going to do something. How many have ever heard that expression, don't, choose, don't shoot the messenger? Anybody ever heard of that? Yeah. How many have heard of that? Okay, let's take a look. I, you know, I can't argue that this is where it originated from, but you know, I, I think there may be some merit to what I'm going to say tonight. This is what happened. There was actually a pagan belief that if someone imposed a curse on you, you would try to capture that person and have them renounce the curse so it wouldn't happen to you. And if you couldn't get them to renounce the curse, then you would just kill them so it wouldn't happen to you. So in reality, what was happening here is that once Elijah made this statement, this wasn't like he preached a sermon and the king got irritated. No, this is like he preached God's message and the king is going to go out and look for him to make him you know, renounce what he has said or else kill him. So this was kind of a dangerous thing to be doing, okay? And I'll give you an example. There's another incident in the life of Elijah that really brings this out. And it kind of helps you understand another story. And it's found in 2 Kings chapter 1. And this is now what happens after Ahab is dead. His son Ahaziah is now the king. And in the story, Ahaziah actually falls out of a window. And he injures himself pretty severely, and he decides that he wants to know if he's going to survive. But because he's been deeply influenced by his father Ahab and his mother Jezebel and his grandfather's Baal religion, he decides to seek you know, counsel from Belzebub, the god of Ekron. So he sends some messenger off to get the news. Hey, you know, am I going to survive? And guess what? God starts speaking to Elijah, and Elijah catches up with these messengers. And this is what we read. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there's no God in all of Israel that you're going to go off and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. Now, how many know that's not good news? And this king is not happy with that message, okay? And so it says the messengers returned to the king. He said, hey, how come you guys are back so soon? I sent you off to a distant land. Here you are, you know, having... And they said, well, a man came to meet us, and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and tell him, this is what Yahweh says. It is, there, is there because there's no God in Israel that you're going to send men to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. Then the king said, hey, what kind of a man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And they said, well, he's a guy with a garment of hair and leather belt around his waist. And the king said, I know who that is. That's that bad news bear. That's Elijah the Tishbite. I mean, you know, my dad had problems with him, you know. And then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. This is where the story gets really interesting. 
Now, why would you go, you know, I just want to talk to Elijah. Wouldn't you just kind of send one person? He's sending a soldier with 50 armed men, you know. How many get the idea he's going to try to capture Elijah, bring him, drag him back, have him renounce what he said, or else he's going to kill him? And so Elijah, he knows how these pagans think. He knows where they're coming from. And it says the captain went up to Elijah, was sitting on the top of a hill. He said, man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah says, uh, to this captain, if I'm a man of God, may fire from heaven consume you and your 50 men. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the captain and his 50 men. How many remember reading, have you ever read this story? You're kind of going, what in the world is going on? You know, boy, Elijah, you're kind of a tough nut. You know, you're just calling out on God. God just sends lightning down there and, you know, the captain and 50 people are scorched. You know, isn't this the God of love, Pastor? You know, he's just kind of taking out 51 people here. Well, that's nothing. The king now, because his life is on the line, because he's, you know, he's afraid he's going to die, because he's, in his mind he's being cursed. It says, at this the king sent to Elijah another captain with his 50 men. The captain said to him, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. You know what's going to happen. If I'm a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 51. Now you got two captains dead and 100 bodies laying all over the place. And you know, the king is so uptight about this, he's not giving up. He's going to capture Elijah. So he sends another guy, the third captain with his group of men, 50 men. But the third captain, by now, he's looking around, he's smelling scorched skin and sees dead bodies laying out all over the place. You know, he's, he, he's like, he's uptight about this. And he's got a little bit more going on inside of him because he's not like the second guy. You know, I'm tougher than the first guy. He's the third guy. He's going, he's coming at it with a whole different approach. He goes, listen, man of God, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servant. In other words, don't kill us, right? We've been ordered by the king, but we're, 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 you know, we're, we're afraid of you, basically. And see the fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, okay, you can go down now. You don't have to be afraid of this guy. They're not going to hurt you. Because now they know I'm going to protect you. How many like that? God's going to protect his people. Okay, that's good news. Now I bring all of that story out because, you see, this was Ahab's son. And so Ahab is now searching to find Elijah. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, a little later on, we read in another story here that, uh, well, I've already told you this, the pagans, what they thought. But when God had finally told Elijah that he was about to bring rain upon the land, he also presented himself to Ahab. But he didn't go directly to Ahab. He went to one of Ahab's servants because there was two of them out there looking for some grass and how they could take care of their limited amount of animals. And he runs into this guy by the name of Obadiah. And so Elijah shows up. And Obadiah now... He's freaking out because he's actually a God-fearer. He's a Yahweh-fearer. And so he says this, Now what have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? In other words, if I come up to him and say, Hey, Elijah's going to present himself to you and you don't show up, I'm dead. Okay, I'm not going to mess with this guy. He's really uptight. As a matter of fact, as surely as the Lord your God lives, there's not a nation or a kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And wherever a nation or kingdom claimed that you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. Wow. Isn't that amazing? So God had preserved Elijah from Ahab for three and a half years. How many think that's kind of amazing? And you know where he put him? Well, that's where we're going. He brought him by this little brook right under the nose of King Ahab 
out in the wilderness where nobody thought to go. Nobody thought that they could go out there and sustain life. That's where God sent them. Now, how many know that when God sends you somewhere, it's going to be a bit of a challenge sometimes? You know, sometimes God doesn't always send us where we want to go. I don't know if you guys have discovered this yet, but that can happen. Uh, eventually, you know, Elijah presents himself to Ahab, and here we see the attitude of the king toward the prophet. Uh, so, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? In other words, you're the one that's cursed our land. Look at the terrible situation we're in. You know, rather than repent, Ahab is blaming Elijah for the drought. Isn't that kind of the way it is? You know, people mess up, and then they go, it's, it's, it's your fault that I'm in this bad shape. How can you do that, right? But we do. And then Old Testament scholar Donald Wiseman writes, Elijah is being accused of being the troubler of Israel because he was thought to have brought the drought and incurred the wrath of the Baals. And this was a crime against the state worthy of death. And Elijah's reply is that Israel's trouble is not the dearth of rain, but a lack of faithfulness to God's covenant. And that's exactly what was happening. And so this is how Elijah responds to King Ahab. He says, I've not made trouble for Israel. You and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. That's why we're experiencing this drought. You know, that's the problem. But the amazing thing about Elijah is that he trusted God, and we can see that by his obedience to God. He believed what God said, and he acted on it. How many know that true faith actually is demonstrated by obedience? So when you and I are not in obedience, we're not actually operating in faith. How many know that? See, God isn't, you know, we can say, well, I believe this, and God goes, okay, go do it. And until we do it, God says, you don't really believe it. You have to act on it. You have to act in obedience on what God's word has to say. Now, to hide at this little brook, Kareth, would be a challenge of faith. And um, this guy named F.W. Krumacher, who wrote a book on Elijah the Tishbite, he says this, the little brook, Cherith, whose very name in the original language denotes drought as if it were generally more apt to dry up than most other brooks, had run until now and surely by a miracle, but it was only for an appointed time. So here's what we need to know. God's word comes to Elijah. Elijah goes, okay, I have to go in the wilderness. He's sending me to a brook. Now, if you've told it there's going to be a drought and there'll be no rain, what's going to probably happen to the brook? It's going to dry up. So, I mean, you can sit down and start arguing with God. You guys have never had these conversations. God says, I want you to go over there. Oh, by the way, here's how I'm going to take care of you in the wilderness. I'm going to send ravens in to feed you, and you're going to sit by a little brook that will probably dry up. <laughs> how many think that's really an exciting, you know, direction in life? Well, then we see the nature of the providers, and I really like this, you know. The ravens are not noted for their charity. You know, they're not noted for sharing things, you know. You know, Patty one time was walking somewhere and she saw these ravens and they actually work together. They're really amazing. And I, I was doing a little research on them. Ravens are one of the smartest creatures on our planet. They're right up there with porpoises and chimpanzees. They're really smart birds. And uh, they, you know, in their adolescence they hang out in groups, but eventually they have a mate for life and they always work together. And sometimes, you know, they know, they're, they're so smart they notice things, they can actually mimic other animals, their sounds. And let's say there's a dead carcass and they can't get into it to eat it. They'll actually mimic, mimic another animal to call them that, that kind of an animal over there to tear up the carcass to get it started so that they can come on later on and eat it. 
Is that amazing? They're really, really smart creatures. And so she said one time she was out there walking, and here these ravens were. We're living in McMurray, and there was this dog on a chain, and uh, he had a bone, and the ravens decided they wanted what he had, and so one of them started dancing right by him, and so the dog took off at the end of, and the raven stood so close, he knew how far that chain was going to go before the dog kind of choked himself, and the dog is yiping. Meanwhile, the other raven is pulling the bone away. You know, they, they just know how to do this. They're really smart creatures. So, you know, for these birds to be commanded by God to feed Elijah, how many know that's kind of a little bit different? I mean, that's a little bit on the supernatural side. But it gives the idea that God can provide in very unusual ways. They're kind of reluctant provider. You know, I had that experience once. You know, we were first married. And just as we were getting married and we were uh, going to college, we had no money. We had, I mean, really no money. Uh, Patty's parents had both passed away. My dad was, you know, he was, you know, divorced from my mom. He was, you know, in a very bad way in his life at that time. And my mother was trying to raise two little boys. He had no money. So we had no money, guys. And so we're, we're, I, we rent this apartment. It's unfurnished. And so I'm at work. I'm working with this guy. Um, and I've been sharing the gospel with him, you know, and we, we had a lot of conversations. You know, it's kind of a captive audience. We're both cooking and we're both working in a station. We did this for a couple of years together. Well, he said to me, hey, Paul, you know, what are you going to do for this apartment? How, do you have any furniture? And I go, no, but God will provide. And so he said, uh-huh, right. You know, he's kind of like, this is the kind of person, kind of a mocking, scoffing personality, you know, give me a bad time. I said, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. God's going to provide for us. I know that. And uh, finally one day he said to me, you know, my, I have this old used furniture, you know, it's kind of an antique stuff. He says, if you're interested, I'll let you have it. I said, well, that's great. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate that. And so Ken gave us all this furniture, and we put it in our apartment. Everything's nice. And, and then the next day he said, you know, see, I want you to know, Paul, see, God did not provide. I provided for you. And he said, Ken, you need to understand. You were the means by which God provided for me. He just looked at me like, really? You know, like, you know, there's no way to kind of, you know, get this in your head that God didn't provide for you. I said, no, God did. He just happened to use you to provide for me. By the way, eventually Ken became a Christian. It was really, a, it's a neat story. I could tell it another time, but uh, it was so cute. Yeah, God did provide. You know, the question that arises in our minds, he's, he's sitting there, and how many know when the drug conditions continue on? The brook is drying up. Isn't that kind of amazing? Every day he's watching the brook get smaller. Now, how many know that when your resources are dwindling, does that ever bother any of us, that your resources are dwindling? Anybody have a, get a little bit apprehensive about that? Well, he's sitting there watching God's provision dry up for him. And that's a little terrifying, I think, at times. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why does God allow that to happen in our lives? Why, if God is such a good and loving God, why does he, you know, test us? Why does he allow these challenges to come into our lives? I mean, you know, if God's caring and loving, why, is this, why isn't things working out the way I thought they would? How many have ever asked that question? Oh, let's be honest. Ever, come on, have we ever asked that question? Of course we have. And I'm going to give you an answer tonight. You say, what is the answer? Well, remember when Jesus saw this great crowd of people, he's going to, there's 5,000 men. It says here in John's gospel, he looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, where should we bread, buy bread for these people to eat? You know, I think Philip had this kind of personality. It's kind of like an account. You know, he's trying to try, total it up. You know, he's walking around trying to figure out how we're going to feed 5,000 people. And you know what Philip finds out? Philip finds out they have a little boy's lunch. They don't have enough money. They don't have anything. There's just no way in the world they're going to feed this many people. But Jesus asked the question, 
How are we going to do this? And Philip's racking his brain trying to solve the problem. That's kind of like us a lot of times, trying to figure this out, you know. And the next verse kind of gives us a clue. It says, uh, he asked this only to test him. For he, was al- he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus already knew how he was going to take care of those people, but yet he asked the question. And why did he do that? To test him. You go, why does God test us? I'm glad you asked that question tonight. It's a question you've probably asked, and we need to probably have some sort of an answer. Can I just say this? That God has to challenge our faith in order to develop greater faith. You see, you know, I'm kind of thankful. When we went to Bible college, you know, we didn't have... You know, most of the young people there had someone to help them out. Isn't that true, Patty? I mean, you know, somebody coming to scrape and, you know, mom and dad or an aunt or uncle, somebody would come along and always help these guys out. When you don't have anybody, do you know what you have to do? You got to talk to God. You got to learn to trust God. And, you know, because of those experiences going through Bible college, I think I learned as much about trusting God through Bible college as I did about theology. And that really kind of helped me as a pastor because later on in life, you know, when I became a pastor and I started saying, you know, we got to try to do this. And everybody would look at me, well, how are we going to do that, pastor? I'm going to say, God, God's going to provide. And they look at you like, really? I'm going, yes, trust me, God is able. This is not too hard for him, guys. And where did I come up with that stuff? Because I had been exercising my faith all along, see? That helps. You see, let me put it to you this way. How many know that if you're going to be physically fit and you're going to build muscle in your body, what do you got to do? You got to exercise it. Isn't that kind of, you know, you're exercising your muscle. God wants us to exercise our faith in him. He wants this to be happening. But you know, I always think this is ironic. If you're weightlifting, you're actually, t- you're actually tearing down your muscle. Doesn't that kind of sound kind of counterintuitive? You're counterintuitive. You're kind of tearing something apart. And that's actually how you're building yourself up. How many think that's kind of a weird approach? And yet that's true in the physical, but I believe it's also true in the spiritual. God allows tests to come into our lives. So you and I are forced to trust God. And as we trust God and watch how God answers our prayer, then we begin to have confidence that God is able to do things that we didn't think he could do. And that over time, our faith begins to grow. And so that further on, as we're walking through this life of the Christian life, the challenges get greater. Some of you think, well, as you get older, it should get easier. And I have not discovered that, folks. That is not what happens. As you get older, it gets more challenging. Yeah, that's true. Because when you're younger, you, you know, you have a lot more idealism, you have a lot more energy, you have a lot more optimism, you have a lot more physical abilities and strength, and all of a sudden as you get older, those things diminish. Isn't that true? The older people in the room are, should you be nodding your head? You're going, yeah, it's true. And so hopefully by this point in your life, your faith has grown, and your ability to trust God has increased. Amen? And that's why King David could make this declaration. He said, I was once young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their seed begging for bread. That was David's experience. Wow, isn't that great? And we can have that confidence. God will take care of us, even when situations go sideways on us. Yeah, I like that. He's gonna develop our faith. But let me move on to the second means here in which God is gonna provide for us in famine. It's even and more perplexing, uh, but it expands. He's going to do it in ways that are even more perplexing, but it'll also not only expand our faith. God is not just interested in us. He's interested in everybody. 
And so many times God challenges us in order to help not just us grow, but the people around us to grow and develop. Isn't that powerful? So here's what happens. You know, sometime later in verse 7, the brook dried up. That's when we're in panic mode, right? Have you ever had those experiences in life? The brook dried up. I've had those moments. The brook dried up. The job came to an end. The money came to an end. The problems now are overwhelming us. The circumstances seem greater than every other reality. Anybody have those experiences in life? Okay, listen to me very carefully now. I'm going to encourage you tonight. Everything you see is temporary. Everything you're experiencing is temporary. Everything that is visual is temporary. It's all going to come to an end. Let me explain what is eternal. God is unchanging and eternal, and whatever God says, that's eternal. Okay? So we have a choice. We can let the circumstances define us, or we can let the Word of God define us. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If you'll stand on what's unchanging, you're going to watch your circumstances change. Is that powerful? Watch what happens. The brook dries up. Then it says... Because there had been no rain. That makes sense. It's all logical, sequential, chronological. We're following it. Then it says, then the word of the Lord came to him. Aren't you glad God's word comes to us? Tonight, God's word is coming to you. Some of you, you're getting God's word. God is speaking to you right now. Listen very carefully to what I'm saying. This is so powerful. We need to hear the word of God before we act. We tend to act before we hear the word of God. We tend to get ourselves in big-time trouble because we try to figure it out for ourselves and we make dumb decisions. Right? Sometimes, yeah, we've been there. Yeah, we've all been there. More than once. Right? So here was what I'm going to say to you. Don't do anything until God speaks into your soul a word into your spirit. Listen to what it says. The word of the Lord came to him. He says, go at once to Zarephath. I've got a new place. I want to declare to you tonight... The brook Cherith will dry up. In other words, so often we look at our jobs as our source rather than the means. God is your source. Put this in your mind. My job is not my source. The government is not my source. My mom and dad are not my source. You know, my uh, pension plan is not my source. God is my source. You need to write this down in your little notes. God is my source. And you know what? There'll come a moment when the the brook Cherith dries up. How are you going to respond? The word of the Lord will come. Go to Zarephath. You go, where is Zarephath? Well, Zarephath seems to be in the wrong place because it says it's in Sidon. How many catch that? It says here, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon. Now, where is Sidon? Sidon is a city just north it's a Phoenician city. Well, I've got to tell you this. You know where that is? That's where Jezebel's daddy is the king. And that's the place that's imported all the problems into Israel. This is like drump, jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. God is telling them, I want you to go. Now, how many think Ahab is never going to suspect First of all, that he's going to go into an uninhabitable wilderness. And number two, he's now going to go hide in the lion's den, if I can use those terms. That's not where Ahab is expecting him, right? 
He goes there because God tells him to go there. And I love this next statement. It says, I have commanded a widow, just like he commanded the ravens, I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Excuse me, God. Hold it. Widows in Bible times were the people who had great need and everybody had to help them. You mean you're going to send me to a person who's got more needs than I have to meet my need? How many goes, not computing? You're sending me to a heathen land to be taken care of by a widow. I mean, a millionaire, I can understand it, but a widow? How many are following? Oh, first of all, God allows his means to dry up. We've seen that. But you know, even in the midst, now we're just talking about Elijah. Let me point out there's a few other people in the story. There's also some sideline people that we need to hear about. Remember Obadiah, when he first runs into Elijah, he's a little, how many know you might be a little intimidated with Elijah because he's kind of the guy that can actually call down firebolts from heaven and zap you? You know, so you're always a little intimidated by people like that. He's intimidating. So he says, haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and have supplied them with food and water. So now we find out there's other people whose God is providing for in the middle of the famine. How many say that's pretty impressive? You know, so it's not just Elijah that's getting provision. There's other people getting provision. The second thing I notice from these verses is that Elijah stays put until God comes to him. We often feel like when we're in crisis, we have to do something to make it happen. And often what God is trying to do is cause us to wait and trust him and make decisions that are directed by him. Once again, we read the word of the Lord came to him. God directed Elijah. Theodore Epp in his book, Elijah, Man of Like Nature, says God did not send a sudden squall of rain for that immediate neighborhood. You know, God could have just said, I'm going to dump a little bit of rain just to fill up the brook, Cherith. I'll dump a little bit more money in this bank account for you, you know, right? Isn't that kind of, you know what I think what we like? We want always God to do something spectacular and dramatic, like winning the lotto even though I don't buy a lotto ticket. You know, that's kind of our mentality, isn't it? Like, you know, God, I need this kind of money right now. And God goes, I'm not going to do it that way. You know, how many know what I'm talking about? Anybody relate to this? You know, we always want the dramatic. You know, my, you know, my third, 15th removed aunt just passed away and willed me this kind of money. I didn't even know she existed, right? And I get this check. You know, that's just weird stuff that goes through our minds. Isn't that kind of how we think? You know, I'm looking in the mailbox every day for something that's going to not show up. Isn't that kind of how we are? You're all smiling at me like, Pastor, this is so amazing to me. How do you know these things? I'm not going to tell you how I know these things. Well, because I'm, I'm as guilty in some measures. It says now, Krumacher writes in his book, reason was now again constrained to quit the field. In other words, what he's saying is, this isn't making sense, this direction of God. Elijah's ordered upon a long and toilsome journey, right, through a wild and barren country in time of general famine and extreme drought, and, uh, and into this land of a heathen people enslaved to a vile idolatry, the native county of country of Jezebel, his bitterest enemy, and the territory of a father, a furious tyrant, also in alliance with Ahab. This is really making sense, God. How many of you notice with God, there are things that don't always make sense, and that's what I love. The third, person in, the, the third thing that I'm seeing in the story is the person Elijah sent to. He sent to a widow. Wow. 
So what are we learning from Elijah? That life of faith is trusting God even when at times it don't make sense. And so many of us, we've probably memorized this little text. Well, I, I just wrote down uh, you know, this whole idea that so often we're learning from Elijah's experience with God is that faith uh, is a life of trusting God and obeying even when we fully cannot grasp it or it may seem counterintuitive. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 3, 5 tells, tells us, right? Trust in the Lord with all of our heart. And then what does it say? Yeah, don't try to figure it out. That's my paraphrase. Don't stop trying to figure it out. Just don't go there. It doesn't always have to add up in your mind. As a matter of fact, you know what I love about God when I pray? He answers in ways I hadn't anticipated. How many have ever had that? You go, I wouldn't have done it this way. That's not how I would answer this prayer. I could actually coach God on how to answer prayers. Haven't you ever done that? I'm telling him, this is exactly how I want it done. You know, God, why don't you just heal my, my, my cousin over here? Just zap him, you know, miraculously walk out of a wheelchair and serve you. Listen, people come back from the dead and still they wouldn't believe in Jesus. We know that from the story of Lazarus. So that's, you know, we always think, you know, in our minds, we'd say, well, if they just saw a miracle, they'd believe. How many know that we're, we're living and God is doing miracles all the time and we don't get it? You know, he's constantly helping us and we don't get it. So that's not what's going to turn him on, right? It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight or smooth. In other words, if you just let God direct you, things work out a lot better than if you try to help God out. How many have kind of discovered that now? Let's let God help us along this journey. So then it says he went, I love this, verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. He did what God told him to do. It's always a good thing when you and I do what God tells us to do. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he said to her, hey, lady, lady, lady. He's probably thirsty, long trip, right? Drought. Would you bring me a little jar of water and a jar so I might have a drink? And as she was going to get it, this is great. Now he knows that this lady, at least she's hospitable to a stranger. She's going to do something nice for him. She's going to get him a drink of water. That's a great thing. He says, oh, by the way, while you're getting me this little bit of water, he says, he says, would you please bring me a piece of bread? And then she says, buddy, if you think you've got troubles, I've got bigger troubles. Okay? You know, this is now God's provision for Elijah. I love this. Here's, here's God's provision. I'm going to send you to a widow who's going to take care of you. And this is now what, what she says. As surely as the Lord your God lives. Now, I kind of wonder a little bit. I'm just kind of surmising. Maybe she knew about Yahweh. At least she knew about the Israelites. She knew that they were worshipers of Yahweh. And she says, you know, as surely, maybe she even said, you know, I, you know this isn't working with Baal. I'm going to pray to Yahweh. You know, I'm in a desperate situation. You know, Baal hasn't really showed up for three and a half years. There's been no rain in the land. It was a terrible drought. It was even affecting Sidon. She says here, or Zarephath, she says, you know what, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil in a jug, and I'm gathering a few slips, sticks to take it home and make a meal for myself that we may eat it and die. In other words, she says, I was really going to fix my last meal, and then we were going to starve to death. Okay? How many think, God, really? This is the person that you're going to take care of me? How many go, it's a weird story. Come on, how many, let's admit this. This is really different. This is really not how I see God, you know, answering. I mean, you know, at least, you know, you think a nobleman comes along and says, hey, come on over, I've got lamb chops for dinner, you know. You like it, it's a little piece of bread. She goes, hey, I can't even do that. If I do that, we're not going to have anything to eat. 
But you know, Elijah is a funny guy. He thinks to himself, hey, if God told me a widow's going to take care of me, then God's going to have to take care of the widow. You know what he says to her? He says this to her. Listen. And I think this is all counterintuitive. Elijah believes that God will provide through this meager resource, and so he tells the widow to do the unthinkable, the unreasonable. How many think it's amazing to have her give that's so sacrificial to put God ahead of herself and her children and her family and herself. Elijah says here in verse 13, don't be afraid. Go home and do as I've said, but first make a small cake of bread for me and for what you have, from what you have, and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. She goes, hey, did you get the story here, buddy? Look, I'm fixing the last meal. If I do that for you, I won't have anything. And then this is what Elijah says. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain in the land. He basically says to us, real simple, give me your last meal, and God will take care of you. But if you don't do this, well, I can expect. Now he has a choice. He's kind of going, okay, go home, eat this last meal, die. Or go over home, fix the meal, give it to him. If it doesn't work the way he says, we're all dying. Okay, real simple. She makes a decision. She goes, you know what? I'm going to trust what he has to say. I believe what he's saying. Something the way he said it. I'm just going to believe what he's going to do. So you know what she does? She gives him the meal. You know what happened for the next how many years? Out of the little meager supply she has, it never ends. How many goes pretty good? This is like winning the lotto and getting so much a week. You don't need a lot of folks. You just need God. You need to do what God says. No, I was so challenged by this text. Here's the challenge. How can you ask people to give in a time of recession? I'm reading the story. God spoke to me and said, if they don't learn to give, they're not going to receive. You see, there's a principle at work that we need to understand. I'm not saying this for my benefit. I'm saying it for all of our benefit. This is what Jesus said. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. He said, that's what David's are worried about. That's what they're running after, he says. And your heavenly Father knows what you need. He's either your shepherd or he's not your shepherd. He's either one that can take care of you, can't take care of you, right? He said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, you've got to put God first in your life. And if you put God first, God will take care of you. It's God first in your life. You go, well, here he is, Pastor, really? Are you trusting him? How are you trusting him? Isn't that amazing? How many see it? It's real simple. You have to make a choice. Either I put God first. And that's a big issue in our culture today. We've got our families first. We've got our jobs first. We've got ourselves first. We've got our pleasures first. We've got all kinds of stuff first. You know, we want God and these other things. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. We've got to give up everything. Put me first. And I'll take care of you. How many kept it? How many are clean? Yeah. That was a big, how many think that was kind of a big decision on her part? How many are glad that she actually did it? She was probably pretty happy she did it too, wasn't she? He kept living. That's an amazing thing. I don't want to get the rest of the story, but I want to close, you know, with a story here. 
How many here, you know, you say, Pastor, I love this verse from Matthew 6, 34. It says, don't worry about tomorrow. How many here, you say, you know what? I have to be honest. I have worry issues. I have anxiety issues. Come on now. Let's be honest. And you know what? We should all have our hands up. Because the only reason you don't have your hands up is because the pressure is not on you right now. But when the pressure gets on, I can tell you, you're going to start worrying. If God closes the little book drives up that you're camped on right now, your hand will be up. Come on now. Let's be honest. Is that true? You want to find out? You want to touch God? You want to turn the faucet off? Find out how much worry you have? No, I don't really want to do this, God. Leave the faucet on. Okay, right? What is God trying to teach people in Alberta? You've been looking to the wrong source. You've been focusing on the means of the blessing rather than the blesser. I'm going to turn the tap off for a while. You need to learn this, guys. And let's face it, that's how we discover faith in God. Isn't it usually in desperation that we really come to a deep faith in God? You know, I'm going to be honest. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't have the kind of faith I have today if it wasn't for the fact that God allowed me to be tested many times in my life. That's what developed it. I'm not so spiritual. That's why God shut the path off. I have a choice. I either trust God or I'm stuck. Right, God, you're going to have to help me. And you start learning to live like this. You start thinking like this. So when you have disappointments in your life, you know, like when you're, you know, your retirement plan all of a sudden lives all kinds of money, you go, just money. Just money. Just money. Don't take God away from me. Don't take God away from me. God is my source. F.B. Meyer tells the story of a little boy in Germany. He was with his mom. She was a widow and had nothing to eat. It's a long time ago. And they sat down at the supper table and there was no food. The mom opened the Bible. She read the story of how God provided food for the prophet. But he brought ravens to supply. The little boy was disturbed with the story. He said, Mom, can I open the door? I said, what? I want to allow the raven to come and bring us the provisions God has for us. The mom was so moved by his faith, he said, go ahead, open the door. Meanwhile, the burgomaster, which is like the mayor of the town, was walking by. He noticed all the doors were shut, but this one door was open. He thought that was really strange. He walked over, he walked through the door. He said, hey, what's going down here? And before they explained what was happening in their life, they had nothing, they had no food, you know, they were destitute. And the burgomaster said, let me be God's raven to you. And he went out, and not only did he provide for that meal, but he made sure that they were taken care of. God has ravens for his children. Amen? God has widows you know, places that you and I go, never would have expected it. Never would have thought of it. God has a way to provide for our lives. What do we need to do? We need to trust Him. Amen? So we're going to have you stand tonight as we close in prayer. And I'm going to pray for all of you. You know, that say, you know, Pastor, there's anxiety in my soul. This is not a good time in our lives. This is a challenging moment in our lives. You know, it just seems like the book is drying up.
we learn? God is our smartest. What have we learned tonight? God is the provider. Amen? What have we learned tonight? I still have to learn to trust God, and sometimes i got to give. You know? Look at that widow. She had to give all she had in order to... And you know, I'm going to challenge you. The, the great thing that I'm learning through this, all of this whole experience is I have to keep giving. I have to learn to be sacrificial sometimes. You know, how many of us, you know, giving sacrificially? God just looked and said, I want you to do this. And we just gave. And it was at your expense. I mean, because usually we're living off extra, right? But God says, no, I want you to give up this. I want you to give this instead of you taking it. I want you to give it up. Well, that's kind of a challenging thought, isn't it? You know? But are we really walking with God? God will bless you for doing that. You know, He will. God is looking at developing what in our lives? Our faith in Him. It's, not, it's, it's that we learn to trust Him. It's not about how much faith do I have. No, it's learning to say, God, I trust you. That's what real faith is. And real faith not some sort of a game I'm playing. No, it's actually acting on what God showed me to do and not living with fear and anxiety. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be anxious. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out. If you trust God tonight, He will take care of you. He really will. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that great? Let's put it first. So God will be thanking you tonight. You are such a gracious, loving, kind father. I love Psalm 23. It's my favorite song because you're my shepherd. You're our shepherd. And Lord, we need to trust you. We need to depend on you. We're not that wise. We're not as wise as you are. You know exactly what you're doing, Father. Our eyes are on you tonight. Our hope is in you tonight. Lord, we're going to stand on your word tonight. You are our provider. You are Jehovah, daughter of the Lord who sees and provides. Lord, you know where every heart is at tonight. You know where every uh, challenge is coming at our lives tonight. You are there, Father, for us. You feel our pain. You see our tears. You hear our cry. You know our need. I pray tonight that you would fill it with your provisions of grace, love, and mercy. Lord, even this week, may we see the provision of ravens flying in your provisions. May we see, oh God, the little widow is willing to give to another. And in the 